todo el mundo. Was really... 1881. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Hi, and welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. My guest today is John Blair, who is here to tell us about the new documentary he produced, The Sound of Surf, which features the king of surf guitar himself, the late Dick Dale, as well as members of the Bel Airs, the Shantays, and many others. John's own band, John and the Night Riders, were at the crest of the second wave of surf music in Southern California, and we'll talk about that too. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stacy. It's a pleasure to be here and chat with you for a few minutes yeah i mean we've been friends on facebook for a long time through our shared love of surf music indeed indeed yeah so um you're making a documentary about surf music and there have been quite a few about certain bands but i don't really recall ever having seen one about the genre itself so tell me a little bit about how the sound of surf was conceived and how you as a producer and an interviewee were able to narrow the story down like you did because it seems like a lot to take on but you really have it streamlined well yeah it took 16 years <laughs> oh wow it doesn't look it I don't it doesn't look like any of the um interview footage is mismatched or anything so it's really seamless well uh thank you um yeah some of those interviews in the movie were done actually 14 15 years ago wow. um and I look a lot younger. And, you know, uh, this is a long, kind of a long story, but let me try and, and uh, slim it down a little bit. First of all, Sound of the Surf um, is Tom Duncan's brainchild. Tom Duncan is the director of the film. Tom um, approached me 16 years ago. I did not know him before he contacted me. And he explained that he wanted to do a documentary on the story of surf music, which he said, and he was correct, that had never been done before. So, and he felt that it was uh, a story that was captivating and interesting, and uh, it would be uh, it would be a good thing to to do a, a full blown documentary on the music. And I agreed, and I agreed to help him as executive producer and kind of the subject matter expert um, to work with him on the film. So, we started this project 16 years ago. Um, 
we went to Italy twice to film surf bands because it is now a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just restricted to the United States. Um, and uh, we worked on it. Well, yeah, it, it was a long road. Uh, a lot of licensing was needed. A lot of um, releases and contracts and agreements needed to be signed. And all of that took uh, an awful lot of time, especially when you are working on a budget that gets you through next month. And then, and then next month, you, you'll revise the budget to get you through the summer and so on. So um, making a movie like this, as you well know, having done uh, the really nice Stars on Guitars documentary on the Ventures, um, it takes a lot of money and a lot of time and effort to put something like this together in a creative and entertaining way. So um, we kind of approached this from the standpoint of Tom wanting to tell a story. Tom told me from the very beginning he did not want this documentary to ultimately become a lecture on surf music. He wanted to tell an entertaining story. And so um, I worked with him for 15 years and um, we, we never got to a point where he was ready to lock the movie. He kept telling me that there was one more interview he wanted to do, one more thing he wanted to work into the film. But he finally got to a point in the summer of 2021 where he locked the movie. He told me that he wasn't going to do any more editing, that it was done and uh, the soundtrack needed some work. But in terms of editing the video part of the film, that was done. And two months later, he unexpectedly passed away. It wow. was a really unfortunate situation. Um, when you get to uh, a finish line that you can see but you're not quite there yet. And then the guy that's controlling the whole thing kind of passes away. What are you, what are you going to do? So as the executive producer, I was really the only logical individual to finish the film, meaning that uh, finishing the soundtrack, essentially. So um, I spent nine months working on the soundtrack of the film, and we finally got the whole thing locked last September, almost 16 years to the day when uh, Tom emailed me asking me if I wanted to be a part of this project. So that's kind of where we stand with it. Uh, the film was finished last um, September. And since then, uh, we've put it on the film festival circuit to try and generate some attention for the movie and to ultimately find a distribution partner. We want to get the movie on DVD and streaming uh, platforms out there. And so um, that's how we're that's how we're approaching that part of the of the finish line challenge is to um, get dvds and streaming out there but we need a distribution partner to do that so we are currently in the film festival on the film festival circuit uh through um the spring so we'll see what happens fingers are crossed right yeah i mean that's part of um making a documentary film there's a lot of good luck involved when it comes to getting it out there but I mean even making it is such an accomplishment and I love the unique angles that you all pursued the through line of the film has Jimi Hendrix in the beginning in the middle and the end and it all ties together quite cleverly and um, I was also impressed that you covered Kathy Marshall who's an iconic yet little known figure in that world of surf guitar um, I feel like people watching it will learn a lot and it does not sound like a lecture. Um, so tell me a little bit about like, has it been shown? You said it's on the festival circuit. Have you seen it with an audience or what's been the response so far? I've, I've gone to a couple of these festivals and I've seen it with an audience and um, 
it's been wonderful. You, you know, the audience reaction has been positive. We've won three awards already, <laughs> excuse yeah. me, uh, three awards in a couple of film festivals. So um, it's doing fairly well. I think we're about uh, almost 50% accepted in the festivals that we have submitted. I don't know how that percentage um, ranks with other documentaries, uh, music documentaries of this type, but to be accepted by half of the film festivals you've submitted just seems to me to be a pretty positive accomplishment. Um, what was the rest of your question? Um, <laughs> well, that is an accomplishment for one thing, because there is so much content and competition and a lot of people did make and complete films during the lockdown. So you're really doing well if you're even halfway um, you know, in being accepted, you know, and also I think learning about Kathy Marshall is an important part of your documentary because surf music is such a male centric world that it's hard to find um, women to kind of participate and talk about it. Well, that's an important point. And it's, it's something that was in the back of my mind as we started working on the film was how how much of the scene, uh, let's say, were we going to actually cover during the production of the film? Tom's approach was to pick a few surf bands uh, to use to tell their story, to use them as tent poles to tell the overreaching story, the, the overarching story of what happened between, say, 1960 and 1964, um, rather than try and dilute it all down by covering as much territory as possible. So Kathy Marshall was a uh, she was a, a, a semi-major player in the Orange County surf music scene in the early 1960s. And she's kind of a, she's got kind of a legendary name associated with her as a female guitar player from that time frame. She never released any recordings. She made a couple of demos at the time, but her legend um, has to do with her performing live with two or three local Orange County surf bands, including Dick Dale. She did a, a couple of shows with him as a, a walk-on guitar player. But Kathy was a very good guitarist and representative of other women in the genre that we did not tell the story of. There were um, a handful of them. They were important, in, in my opinion, they were important to the story. Uh, but Kathy was used as a tent pole to kind of represent the, the, the female element of surf music, which, um, you know, most people don't think about. There wasn't a lot of hits. There wasn't any hits I can't think of offhand. Um, by women that were involved in the music. So uh, Kathy was um, an important story to tell. And, you know, uh, bottom line is this movie really tells um, the American story. It's, it's an American, um, what's the term I'm looking for here? Uh, it, it's a, an American success story. Uh, all of these teenage bands actually doing something with themselves at a time when... Um, Teenagers were not really a great part of the the music experience. It was the older people that were that were having the hit records and so on. So anyway, that's kind of a verbose explanation for your question. <laughs> well, I do think that it's interesting that you would bring up the fact that a lot of these teenage kids were motivated to start bands and to make something of the bands because on the flip side of that, as the film mentioned, surfers were seen as slackers and dropouts. That's right. And they weren't even the audience, the target audience at the time. Hmm. So, you know, they were coming to Dick Dale shows, but um, but they really weren't into the uh, the music initially in the beginning. Certainly they weren't into the music. It took a couple of years for um, 
for people to come around to what was going on. But, you know, Dick Dale was not a teenager when he was at the rendezvous ballroom um, making Miserloo and Let's Go Trippin' and, and um, Surf Beat and all of those records that he did. He was not a teenager. Um, so I don't know. It was, a, it was kids' music, but it's also an American story of success at an early age. And I, I think it's a great story to tell. And I think Tom did a, a wonderful job telling sure the story. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really um, very well put together and very streamlined, as I said. Now, you yourself, you really kind of went against the grain when you started your band, John and the Night Riders, in the late 1970s, because that was the era of disco and punk. I mean, there's just like two genres that couldn't be more different from one another. So yeah. how did surf fit into that live music scene in L.A. at the time? It goes back to the fact that a lot of the bands that were popular at the time in the 70s were influenced. Um, they were roots rock band, I guess is a term, and they were influenced by 50s music and 60s music. I'm thinking of bands like the Go-Go's, uh, the B-52s, the Ramones, certainly, the Cars. Elliot Easton of the Cars is a big fan of surf music. Um, so bands that were started playing now i'm not talking about the disco bands the uh, some of the punk bands were certainly going back to their roots but um there was a rockabilly revival in the 70s a lot of bands started up not just in this country but especially in europe as rockabilly bands so um directly going back to the uh, 50s influence there so there was that influence in the 70s music and it started me thinking around 78 or 79 um I had wanted to make a record back in the 60s when I was learning how to play the guitar and I had my own little surf band uh, in Southern California and I really, I just really wanted to make a record. It just seemed like the thing to do, but I wasn't talented, talented enough. I didn't have the skills. I didn't know how to do it. And so the 60s passed me by. But now we come up to 78 and 79 and we're seeing all this influence, 60s influence in these other bands, like especially the Ramones and the Go-Go's. And uh, I thought, you know, I, I know how to do it now. And I'm a little bit more, you know, um, talented on the guitar. So let me just put a little band together with my friends. We'll go in, we'll re re rehearse a few tunes and we'll go into a studio and make a record and I'll put it out and I'll be done with it. I will have completed that bucket list item, let's say, from, from the 60s. And I did. Well, that record was an EP. It was a four-track EP, and it was just intended to um, to be sold via um, space ads in record collector magazines. That's how I chose to market it. It was on my own label. I pressed it myself, and it sold fairly well, and it got the attention of a record label in Los Angeles. Greg Shaw had Bomp Records in Los Angeles at the time. Greg heard the, the EP and he got a hold of me and he said, um, if you want to go into a studio and record an entire album of this kind of music, I will release it. Well, you're really kind of, I don't know, off your rocker if you said no to something like that, an offer like that. So, so I said, yes, of course. I had no intention of doing anything more with this. Um, but we got, I got the guys together again that I did the EP with. We went in the studio and we recorded an album that was called Surf Beat 80. Came out in 1980. And um, within a couple of months of its release, I had a call from a promoter, a concert promoter in Los Angeles, who was going to put on a big surf show at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. Remember, this was 1979. Um, 
and he uh, he, he had the, a band called the Surf Punks uh, headlining, and they were a very popular LA band at the time. And Dick I Dale was going, to, yeah, yeah, and they were going to be uh, Dick Dale was going to be the the band in the middle, and he wanted to know if we would like to open the show. <laughs> well, we ended up doing that gig in front of three thousand people, sold out at the Santa Monica Civic, first show the band did, and that launched us. Um, then we did another album, we did a European tour, and then another album, and then on and on and on. So I wanna play one of your songs right now. Okay. This one is called Storm Dancer. that I wanted to share with you only because it's a it, it's a feather in my cap and I'm proud of it yeah um, 19 I want to think 1980 is when it happened you know the ventures uh throughout the the 60s and well the late 60s and the 70s didn't really perform here in this country much at all if at all yeah. it was Japan every year for six months or five months or four months yeah and uh, and that went on for years and years well, all of a sudden, they played one date at the Starwood in Los Angeles. I think it was in 1980. 
it was their first appearance in this country, as far as I'm aware, in many, many years. And why they chose to, to come back and play again. And I, back basically, after that, they were doing shows in the United States periodically, even though they're still going to, Europe, to uh, Japan every year. Um, the main reason why they chose to come back and to play at the Starwood had a lot to do with John and the Knight Riders, who were getting a lot of press and a lot of attention at the time playing instrumental guitar instrumental music at a time when it was really unheard of and uh the go-go's who you know recorded surfing and spying yeah and uh, so i think um between the go-go's and my band we were responsible and i i continue to think this whether it's really true or not because it pleases me to think it <laughs> that i had a, a lot to do with them coming back and, and doing some more shows in this country in fact the night they played at the Starwood, I was there for that. And after the show, now this is where my memory is a little fuzzy, but after the show that night, I went backstage with them and was hanging out with the band and Billboard magazine was there with a photographer and they took a picture of the band and they asked me to, to, to get in the picture. Uh -huh. I have never seen that picture. I don't know if it was ever published in Billboard or not. And I oh, don't wow. know if you would have it in your archives, but if you ever come across a photograph of the Ventures backstage at the Starwood, I'm probably in that picture and I'd oh, love to yeah. have a copy of that. So anyway, that's something I just wanted to share with you. Um, it's been a pleasure, a very pleasurable memory over the years, ever since that happened, that I was partially responsible anyway <laughs> that is for all, the yeah, ventures no, deciding to come back and play again absolutely yeah a lot of the younger bands up and coming really reinvigorated the ventures and got them back into you know trying to get into the mainstream again which they did for a while yes yes they did yeah to their right. credit great well, band you. um you know the ventures we didn't talk about it but they were they were not really a surf band as i'm sure you're aware uh, <laughs> yeah. at least at least the, the the people that were into the music didn't consider that uh true but um they were enormously influential to every single surf band that ever you know rehearsed in their parents garage during that time um we all played walk don't run Every single band at the time played Walk Don't Run, as well as, you know, several other Ventures tunes. And then when Walk Don't Run 64 came out, of course, everybody, uh, all the surf bands that were playing with Reverb um, played Walk Don't Run 64. Yeah, so, there's just something about that particular song that, and then that version of it that just really resonates with people. Well, it does. And it does to this day. And none of that stuff has, in, in my opinion, has gotten old. Now, in the... 80s k-rock was kind of the first and last i want to say cutting edge outlets for new and unusual music at least in la because i remember at the time we listened to klos and kmet and it was really album oriented rock so um can you tell our listeners a little bit about how k-rock was different and how they helped your band and other bands well k-rock k-r-o-q in pasadena was different in the sense that they were uh, they had more of a progressive approach to their programming and they would play records, uh, a lot of records by LA bands that were cutting these little independent singles and not getting airplay anywhere else except maybe on college radio stations across the country. But KROQ was one of a handful of radio stations in the nation that, that actually um, would play a lot of this independent stuff. And along we came in 79 with, with this instrumental EP that nobody was really doing at the time. Surf music had been dead since the Beatles in the 60s. And, 
And uh, here we were. And so I think K-Rock uh, raised their eyebrows a little bit and thought, wow, this is um, kind of similar to what, again, what the Ramones and the B-52s and the Go-Go's were doing. So they put it on the air and they played it. Um, and then other surf bands came up after we did, and they were also getting airplay on KROQ. In particular, and I have a, a lot um, to thank him for, uh, Rodney Bingenheimer was the guy that really um, helped push independent L.A. music um, a lot in those days, not just here, but across the nation as well. So uh, Rodney's show on KROQ was a big one, and uh, the radio station itself did a lot to help uh, local L.A. bands at the time get some airplay and some, some uh, credit. Now, um, in addition to being a musician, you're also a writer and you have a book on surf music out and you've written quite a lot of liner notes. So how did you get into that aspect of your career? That goes back to 1975, I think. Um, and I'm going to reference Greg Shaw again at Bomp Records. Greg had a, a magazine, a fanzine that he was putting out at the time called Bomp. Who put the Bomp was the name of the fanzine. And um, I had helped him with a couple of articles on surf music. And one day he contacted me and he said, would you be interested in doing an interview with Dick Dale? Now, this was 75. Um, and so, you know, who was Dick Dale? I mean, Dick had pretty much retired from performing in the late 60s. Mm. And, um, and he asked me if I wanted to do an interview with Dick Dale. Well, here, here we go again. Here's another door that opens when I could have said, nah. But yeah, um, I'd love to meet Dick Dale. And he was a big influence on me uh, in the early 60s. And so, yeah, I'd love to do that. And I did. And the interview with Dick that, that Greg published in um, an issue of Bont Magazine was my first byline. So that kind of um, put the writer's stoke in me a little bit and started me thinking about things. And one of the things that I came up with uh, in 78 was... Nobody had ever done a discography of surf music in the 60s. There have been Frank Sinatra discographies. Um, I even have a Ventures discography, to be honest with you, that's in a three-ring binder that's about three inches wide. Wow, yeah, it must be. <laughs> um, so, you know, there have been all these discographies over the years of artists and styles of music, but nobody had ever done one on surf music. And I had been a record collector since the, the middle 60s, I guess. And I had a pretty large collection, and I thought, let's just document my collection and self-publish a, a discography of surf music. I did that in 78. It sold really well. Today, that book is in its fourth edition. I've kept wow. it up over the years, and uh, I'm probably going to do a fifth edition later this year. So having this surf music discography kind of put me on the map. A few years later, um, a friend of mine in Australia, who is also a discographer and a record collector, who knew a lot more about hot rod music than I did. I got together with him and together we published a book called The Illustrated Discography of Hot Rod Music, which, you know, in the 60s, uh, the Beach Boys would put a surf record, a surf song on one side and a hot rod song on the other side. So hot rod music, uh, the Rip Chords, for example, Jen and Dean, all these bands and, and the Beach Boys, 409, they were doing these hot rod songs as well. And there were a lot of records that were released, both instrumental and vocal that had to do with cars and hot rods and nobody had ever done a discography of that either so that was book number two and then there was the second third edition of the uh, surf music discography 
And several years ago, I was contacted by Arcadia Publishing. I think they're in North Carolina. Um, they wanted to do a book on Southern California surf music, and they felt like I was the one to do it. So um, I did this book called uh, Southern California Surf Music, 1960 to 1966. It was the, uh, the first and only book so far that I have not self-published. I think it's available, still available on Amazon. So yeah, there have been three books so far. Well, we are running out of time, but I can't let you go without asking my go-to question. What is your rock and roll nightmare? <laughs> um, the, you know, when you, when you ask that question, the first thing that comes to mind is a tour that we did, a European tour one year. And without going into a lot of the gory details, which I can do uh, later if you, if you want, <laughs> um, we had a problem with uh, the drummer that we took over to, to Europe with us on that tour. And, and he had to fly back to the United States in, right after our tour started. Well, that put us in a predicament. We had shows booked, but we had no drummer. So we had to, uh, we had to find someone back here that was familiar with our music that we could fly back over there very quickly. But in the meantime, we still had a couple of shows that were booked that we had to play. And uh, so we, we brought a drummer down from um, Belgium, I think, uh, Holland or Belgium. And I think we were in Germany at the time. He came down and did a couple of shows for us. Uh, but before he was able to, to get to us on a train, and a couple of days before the guy here was able to fly over there, we were kind of stuck. <laughs> you know, what are wow. you going to do? I remember we did one show uh, one night without a drummer, and we explained to the audience um, at the club that night that you know what was going on, and we asked if anybody in the audience played the drums. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, somebody said, "Yeah." <laughs> so he said, do you know Walk, Don't Run? Oh, yeah, I think I know that. Do you know Pipeline? Yeah, I know Pipeline. Do you know Wipeout? Okay, so we ended up doing three or four <laughs> songs that that uh, whoever that was that we brought up from the audience knew how to play, and uh, that was our show that night. That was uh, rather embarrassing. Where can people find out more about The Sound of Surf and you and your books? And just give us all your URLs and socials. Okay, well, my website is johnblair.us. People can go there and read about uh, my background. Um, they can see the John and the Night Riders discography, which I have posted up there, and a um, couple of books and records that I, I'm selling. Uh, so johnblair.us is my website. Soundofthesurf.com is the movie's website. People are free to go there and read up on who's in the movie and what the movie's all about. Um, I want to mention... Um, a website called Surf Guitar 101, and the URL is actually uh, all one string, surfguitar101.com. That's a kind of a, a public forum for people that are into surf music. And anytime there is something to report on Sound of the Surf, I post it there. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks, John. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and, and tell us a little bit about surf music in your documentary. Stacy, it's been a, a privilege and a pleasure. I appreciate the ability to uh, spend some time with you here this morning. Before I go, I'm going to share an excerpt from Rock and Roll Nightmares True Stories, Volume 2. The audiobook is in progress, read by the esteemed Andy Garrison, but um, for now, you'll just have to put up with listening to me read it. 
This is an excerpt from the chapter Psycho Killer. American rock drummer John Gary Driscoll might not be as famous as some of his contemporaries, but sadly, his name is at the center of one of the most bizarre unsolved murders in music history. Gary, who never went by his first name, performed on the heavy metal scene with vocalist Ronnie James Dio and a few bands, including Elf, and he was featured on Rainbow's first album in 1975. The self-titled vinyl includes the legendary classic head-banging barn burner, Man on the Silver Mountain. Surprisingly, Rainbow's leader and guitarist, Richie Blackmore, fired Gary because he was not happy with his sound. Gary played in an R&B style, which you'd think would have been known when he was hired. Nonetheless, he was sacked and summarily replaced by the harder-driving British percussionist, Cozy Powell. After Rainbow faded from his resume, Gary drifted on to a few other bands. Unfortunately, none of them were particularly successful, and he was forced back to his hometown of Ithaca in upstate New York, where he took on a day job in order to make ends meet. The Ithaca Journal published his obituary, which stated that he was a self-employed tile installer. The 41-year-old was found dead in his home on June 8, 1987. Hard facts of the case are almost non-existent, but there's plenty of speculation and rumor. Some say it was a drug deal gone wrong, while others toss Satanism into the mix because the body was allegedly dismembered and flayed. According to lore, there was a suspect who fled the country after being questioned by police. Sadly, the case remains open to this day. But you never know. Due to advances in DNA technology, even the most nebulous murders can be solved many decades later. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time. <laughs>